0: What is the point of a government department if it doesn't do the very basics of its job? Well, more than 2,500 mining applications received in the year 23-24, not one was finalized. Now, according to the Daily Maverick, uh, the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy's administrative capacity has collapsed. The consequences, therefore, for investment in South Africa's mining sector are dire. Ed Stadart is the journalist at Business Maverick, break, uh, blowing this one wide open. What does it take, Ed, to finalize a mining application? Is this you know, the same as putting a man on the moon? How complicated is it?
1: Uh, thanks, Bruce. No, it's certainly not as complicated as putting a man on the moon. Um, but um, I, I guess prospective investors and people who want to explore or develop a mine in South Africa, they need to go through the Samaraj system. Um, and, then the, and then the DMRE officials obviously have to, you know, reject or accept um, these applications. And in December, an ISP member of Parliament, uh, or a member of the National Assembly anyway, um, uh, asked the minister, you know, how many many such applications for mining rights and permits and things like that. Mining license is actually not the correct term to use. Um, He asked, you know, how many of these had been submitted over the course of the financial year? So in December, early December, would have been about three quarters of the way through. Um, and he asked a couple of other questions. Um, but anyway, the minister basically said that none had been finalised. Not one. Nada.
0: Is this unusual? I mean, I go back a couple of years uh, to a time where there were more of these things that weren't being finalised. There always seems to be, there has seemed to be an administrative backlog within the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy for a long time.
1: Yes, I mean, I mean, it first emerged, again, under parliamentary inquiry in February 2021. At that time, the backlog stood at over 5,000. Uh, and it's interesting that it's always, you know, um, the parliamentarians who seem to have to drag this kind of information out of the DMRE, which does seem to have an aversion to transparency. So, and then, you know, the, there were a couple of updates subsequent to that, that. The number was being whittled down and things like that. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, presumably someone in the DMRE knows, or perhaps not, knows the current was... extent of the backlog. But, I mean, obviously, it, it was, uh, I'm just guessing that it's growing by over 2,500, um, at least by December of this financial year.
0: I heard an explanation by a representative of the DMRE, and I do recall very distinctly zoning out of the explanation because it was the sort of explanation that you get from somebody, uh, Cielo Macobela, the Deputy Director General at the department, speaking to John Perlman earlier. And I listened to a bureaucrat giving us a bureaucratic response. There was very, there's not. Any sense of urgency, not any sense of shame, not any sense of remorse, not any sense of, oh, my goodness me, this is something we really need to fix as a degree of urgency because we've got an unemployment crisis, an earnings crisis, a balance of payments crisis in the country. There's that sort of sense of of ownership of the problem. No, uh, I guess. I mean,
1: obviously, there's clearly no consequences. I mean, has anyone been fired over this? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I I doubt that. Um and look, a couple of things would be at play here and well done to John by the way for get for the getting response to the, from the DMRA because I I've yet to receive one. Um but that, so what one person suggested on Twitter or X today that that part of the problem is is that so many of the applications are actually dodgy. You know, it's cutting PACE, EIAs, you know, environmental impact assessments and things like that, that uh, is what this person suggested. Um, and that's quite possibly the case, but it does back then that raises two questions. One is why do so many dodgy operators think that they can make these applications to the DMRE? And uh, the second thing is, well, then why haven't they been rejected? Because, you know, a rejection would also be a finalization.
0: It's yeah, and I mean, yeah, it, I mean that's it, a rhetor- yeah, it's a rhetorical sorry. question, I, I guess, on that particular front, Ed. Um, we know that there's a there's a program called SAMRAD. It feels that sounds like something that came from the 1980s. Um, it's a computer system that is meant to process mining rights applications, and we've had lots of complaints of the SAMRAD system over many many years. What we don't have a clear sense of is to is to whether or not there's any intention to address the SAMRAD system.
1: Well, the, the, there has. I mean, it, it, so the, the, so last year um, the the DMRE said in August that it had affected a preferred bidder to replace SAMRAD, which the minister himself has you know uh, acknowledged as effectively useless, and um, but it was being uh, audited by uh, you know the the IT Department of Government, CETA. Um, there was supposed to be an announcement in October that was not forthcoming. Um, I queried the DMRE about it. They said, you know, please pass your questions to CETA, which is fair enough. And I've been periodically asking CETA about it since November and with nothing. So it suggests... Well, I mean, we. I don't know. It, 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 it suggests that there's obviously been a problem with um, the selection of this preferred bidder.
0: Thank you, Ed Stoddard. Uh, Ed is a journalist of Business Maverick. Listening to that is Peter Major, who, if he had um, any hair left, I think, I think you pulled it out many, many years ago, Peter. You've been complaining to us about the inefficiency of the public sector system around mining and its inefficiency for an awfully long time. It does seem... Uh, certainly as an observer from a distance, that the systems and the processes and the mechanisms for truly seizing the nettle when it comes to what should be the flagship industry for South Africa, that's mining, that it's just not functioning nearly as effectively as it it should? Well, not
2: at all. I think the main question here is, We know the trend is your friend, you know, whatever you see in life, the trend is pretty hard to break. So until something bigger than the trend comes up, it's going to continue as it is. So if you look at the trend of performance from the DMR, but the main question is, is this a linear trend or is this an exponential trend? We know it's getting worse every year, but we don't know, is it getting worse at the same rate it's been getting worse or is it speeding up getting worse? and i'm worried that it is going almost exponential that when you have 2500 applications and not one has been answered that means we have now had an exponential decrease if not a logarithmic it's it's really it's really bad all the wheels have fallen off people kind of have an idea how bad escom is they kind of have bad an idea how bad transit is because it's visible. You use it every day. So you can say, oh, I'm down to 16 hours a day of electricity or 12 hours a day. But because the average man doesn't use the mining department here, he doesn't know. But the people who do use it, they they have pulled all their hair out. I'm not the only guy going bald now. Other people are. It, they just, and I think Gwedi Montash when he gets a question on it, you can see he's so far removed from the problems, and even more removed from he doesn't know how to fix it. And that's, that's the devastating part of this. No one currently there seems to know how
3: to fix it.
0: Uh, is the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy denuded of skills to such a point that the professionals who, well, people we assume should be professionals who are employed by the department are incapable of fixing it? Is it a political leadership problem? Is it a management problem? Is it, is it a problem of, of, of IT? Is it a problem of the staffing of the department who may not be up to the job and simply the DMRE has fallen apart as a result of a whole range of issues? It's definitely a political problem,
2: Bruce. That Like most problems in the country, it's a political problem. And right below political problem, it's a leadership problem. There's nobody leading the DMR. There's nobody saying, guys, this is how we're going to do it. Follow me. Like Alexander the Great when you're taking on the Persians or Patton or Rommel. You know, Follow me. I know what to do. Follow me. And if you can't keep up, fine, we'll transfer you somewhere else. But you can't come here. You can't be here if you can't keep up. So look at the plethora of managers, of directors we've had at ESCOM. And that's not quite as bad as the other departments, but just about. You have people at the very top, starting with your mining minister, should they be there? And so they don't know who to appoint. They don't know who to manage. And the poor guys under them. There's no consequence management. There's no uh, five-star awards if you do good. There's no you're fired, like George Bush said, in America. So, yeah, it's political from the top. It's leadership and it's management. That's what the problem is. We don't know if the people under them are good or bad.
0: What's the opportunity cost here? We've got got countries around the world booming, countries around the world that can barely keep up with demand on some of their commodities. We, however, seem to be slipping further and further and further. We really are. We, we were the world's leading gold producer, the world's leading platinum
2: producer, chrome producer, manganese. You know, there's just, there's no priority. There's no sense of urgency. Worst of all, no one seems to care. The people who control all the levers and control all the money, they're the people who should care and they don't. And that's, that's our government. They could make all this 180 degrees different if they wanted to. But they seem to be focused on something far removed from making these departments good. And, yes, it's hard enough attracting money to this country for mining. So you would think, let's at least process applications. Maybe the guys are fools. Maybe it's stolen money. Maybe it's inherited money. But let's process their application before they have time to think again. Let's get that permit, like Ed said, either accepted or rejected. But to just do nothing, it it, It's devastating for the country. Yeah, that's why all our mineral production is falling.
0: There's no money in exploration. There's no money going for new mines. Minimal, minimal. Peter Major, mining analyst, thank you very much indeed. And the journalist of business maverick, Ed Stoddard, this evening here on The Money Show.
4: The Money Show.
0: The Markets. Ngomalo's are taking over this evening. Siboniso Ngomalo is Chief Investment Officer at the Old Mutual Investment Group with us this evening. Martin Luther King public holiday, it's always a bit of a damp squib of a day and you've inherited it today, Siboniso. Not that much activity on the JSE? Yeah, it was a
5: very, very quiet market. Obviously, when the Americans are not in the market, being the biggest market makers in the world, nothing much is going to happen, Bruce. So... And uh, lackluster of a day, the commodities traded downwards. We saw the platinum miners, Sibania's down four, Impala's down two and a bit. uh, anglo Anglo-American platinum's also down two. And so nothing there. The African banks reflect uh, some conflict in, in, in the world. It's a risk-off world. So... First, ran down four percent. after down two. Then it bank down two. And whenever the world is a little bit shaky, you see it in the banks um, because the banks actually ultimately are an accurate reflection of global
3: risk.
0: Yeah, and certainly it played out negatively for the JSE today. Globally, however, the picture is not that much more cheerful, considering that the, I think, the you know, when it looks at European markets today, they're a bit lackluster. Perhaps the week improves from here as well. Locally versus internationally, this is the consistent m- uh, mantra. You've been singing this mantra for a long time. Last year was deeply disappointing for the JSE because if shares were offering good value this time last year they were offering better value at the end of last year and possibly even better value today and I'm wondering whether or not many investors and we've heard this criticism levied uh, in the past are just not getting trapped in their South African investments which are not growing while the rest of the world many parts of the rest of the world are growing and growing much better.
5: Yes, Bruce. Um, I think let's spend a few minutes on this particular topic because, you know, at the beginning of the year, it's always good to start and look backwards. Um, And I want to talk about the dichotomy between the American market, the U.S. market, and the South African market. Um, And when I thought of this word called expectations, you know, a share price that we see for any company is a reflection of a set of future expectations. So if people expect the company to do very well, then that share price will go up. If they expect the company to perform poorly, that share price will fall down. Now, Bruce, let let us look at what's happening here. So when we look at the South African market, the South African market is trading on nine times earnings, if you're looking forward. Um, And so that is fairly cheap relative to South Africa's own history. So, it is the South African market, the JSE, is looking at South Africa and saying, okay, all this bad news. No, there's, there's some truth in that. So, the expectations are very low in South Africa. Now, the U.S. market, um, on the back of some really stellar returns last year, is trading at close to 20 times, about 19.6, 19.7 times earnings. So, South Africa, low expectations, nine times. America, um, higher expectations, at close to 20 times. Now, the trickier, Bruce is that the American market is actually trading at a very high multiple, and it's driven by only seven stocks, what's called the magnificent seven. Those are the companies you are familiar with, Microsoft, Google, um, Facebook. Um, those are the companies that are driving the market. And, Bruce, if you look back at history, the U.S. market is, is at the point of being more concentrated now than it has been probably since 2000, the 2000 tech bubble. And then before then, you've got to go back to the 1940s to actually find a market as concentrated. Now, even with that, if we delve further, when we look at the earnings or the profitability growth that is expected, in South Africa, the market seems to be expecting about 9% earnings growth. In America, they are expecting about 11% earnings growth. So offshore, you are paying um, a hefty multiple close to 20 times to get 11% earnings growth. In South Africa, you're paying nine times multiple to get 9% earnings growth. At some point, Bruce, whatever the pessimism that is in the country, you've got to look at what returns am I going to get versus what price I'm paying. And there's an argument here that actually we might just be overpaying for seven phenomenal companies, but we're paying a lot of price and there might be a lot of risk in that. So I'm questioning why we're paying that much money for US companies.
0: And, and and i couldn't concur with you more that the valuations are nuts in the united states but in terms of and we just had the horror story of how the dmre is not doing its job in terms of approving licenses and applications or just rejecting out of you know re- rejecting those that are fraudulent and handing over to the national prosecuting <laughs> authority um those that are that, that that may very well be crooked in the in the world of mining applications uh they are two sides of a, of a very, very large coin. On the one side, we're concerned about the hype and the over-exuberance in the United States. On the other side, we're concerned that perhaps we're too pessimistic about South Africa, but there are lots of reasons why those valuations are as low as they are in South Africa and why they may not recover to the level that would be justify risking capital into them. That is very opposed
5: except when we delve into the detail of what makes a south african market when you look at the South African market i think close to 60 percent of south africa's profitability doesn't come from south africa because remember in that nine times earnings you're buying south africa that includes companies like richmond it includes naftas it includes um the mining companies which make money the big ones that make money outside of south africa and so therefore not all of those earnings or profitability in south africa you are buying actually is from South Africa itself. So you are getting access to, say, a company like Anheuser-Busch, which is the largest beer company in the world, whose fundamentals are looking good. And so therefore, if you then strip out the global companies out of that number, the South African stocks even look far cheaper. And that actually is even where, so things are even more pessimistic in South Africa than what the headline number I've just given you are. And so therefore, with that in mind, you are actually starting to buy some really good businesses at really discounted prices. And historically, Bruce, whenever prices get to a certain point, that's how you make money. You don't make money in terms of investment returns by doing what is popular. You make really amazing money by actually sometimes going against the grain and saying there's value here, it's not being recognized, and when the profitability comes through, actually the market then can reward you.
0: That tends to be very profitable, which is a good thing. Chief Investment Officer at the Old Mutual Investment Group. And on to Professor Adrian Savile. He's Professor of Economics and Finance at Gibbs as we talk about the World Economic Forum. In a world where few things seem to be going right. Sure, inflation is falling. 2024 could be the year that central banks start cutting interest rates, but... Lots of risks in the mix. Unfortunately, when you look back at the forecasts and the outcomes of years gone by, most risks in early January are never visible and they're never visible until they happen the most recent of which of course this january the drone attacks by Houthi militias in the sh- on shipping in the red sea the uk and the usa has responded with rocket barrages last week and um, it, it's the sort of stuff that makes the world feel like a tinderbox well this week two and a half thousand two thousand eight hundred leaders from around the world from business and from civil society and government Uh, in Davos at the World Economic Forum for a gathering under the label of rebuilding trust. And they're going to look at four main themes. They're going to look at how to achieve security and cooperation, how to get growth and jobs and worry about artificial intelligence. And then, of course, climate change high up on the agenda as well. Professor Adrian Saville at Gibbs at the Gordon Institute of Business Science, where he's Professor of Economics and Finance, is with us this evening. I saw Busi Siwe Mavuso this morning really saying that uh, South Africa needs to be at the World Economic Forum, South African business leaders need to be there, politicians need to be there, we need to be batting on the big stage, as we have for many, many years. I wonder if it's worth it, Adrian, what is your view as an economist?
6: Uh, evening, Bruce. Great to be with you. It's uh, it's most definitely worth it if you can, you know, get from the from the words to the action. Uh, if you can get from the ideas to the deliverable, which is uh, the heart of any strategy or the essence of any strategy. Um, and South Africa, as a relatively small, uh, very open uh, economy, is uh, remains reliant on foreign capital and international trade and to being able to establish a uh, a voice and and and, uh, and a place uh, on a global stage like the world economic forum uh is uh, is i would say you know I, w- I would go so far as to say critical uh, to south africa's uh, economic uh, well-being and prosperity
0: the trouble is we keep going to the World Economic Forum. We keep making big promises. No, we, well, we're right on top of it. No, we're, getting, we're going to sort out corruption. Yes, of course we're going to sort out electricity. Of course we're going to sort out the myriad of issues with which we, we, we chat about all the time. Yet each time we go back to the World Economic Forum, things seem to have got a little worse rather than a little better. And it does go to the question of credibility, of government's ability to deal with the the issues that the country faces.
6: Yeah, and I think that there's at least two issues here, Bruce. The one is uh, the ability to get from the ideas to the action. And if you just want to give a grandstand example, uh, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, we produced a a growth policy uh, which said that we were going to grow at 5.4% per annum. You know forget about having seen that even close to the average. We haven't seen that number in any one uh, of the years, from from then to now. So there's this yawning difference between uh, the ideas and and the outcomes. And then you know the the deficits that we can add to this are uh, energy deficits, infrastructure, transport deficits, and so on, which makes it really difficult to see how we deliver uh, on any one of those ambitions. And then alongside that is a second challenge, which is, uh, you know, for the sake of a bit of bull speak or, um, you know, one voice meaning two things. And we've seen that perhaps most graphically over the course of uh, the last part of last year with with the BRICS and the expanded BRICS where it's hard to uh, decipher from that quite where South Africa stands in terms of uh, alliance and uh, political and economic intent.
0: I was listening to a podcast the other day and somebody said, what is the secret to happiness? And I think it was a cynical response. It was, well, (laughs) lower your expectations. If you have low expectations, you're more likely to be satisfied with whatever outcomes come your way. And I wonder whether or not, for the sake of everybody's sanity and for the sake of our credibility, we need to start going to these things and just managing expectations a little bit better. Stop making the big, hairy, audacious promises. Start asking for some help. Start asking for some guidance. Start asking for some input rather than going there and saying, yes, of course, we're in control. We can manage everything because it's abundantly clear that we can't. (laughs)
6: <laughs> i'm I, I'm nervous i'm wondering who's hearing me uh, laugh <laughs> at your uh, at your reference um but uh you know lowering expectations is certainly one way uh, of achieving you know your uh, your your commitments or your promises unfortunately you know south Africa has um i think if if I stay with my theme of two you know has two problems here the one is um uh, it's it's now a case of expectations about South Africa. Are low um, because it's it's the reality that there's this very very big difference between what we say we're going to do and the outcomes, and I think that that's a reality that's landed. But the second, and you know certainly to me the more sobering uh, point is, we simply don't have the the luxury uh, of of lowering expectations given uh, South Africa's failure to deliver. And the and and the incredibly damaged state of uh, social uh, and economic fabric. We have to uh, deliver if we're going to get this um, country into a prosperous state, and we have to deliver on ambitious goals.
0: I couldn't agree more, Professor Adrian Saville. Thank you very much indeed. He is professor of business and economics. At Gibbs. First, let's get to real-world intelligence. Tech with Toby this evening. Toby Shapshak, the chief at Stuff Studios. <laughs> Huawei is pricing itself and creating its tech very much in line with what Apple is doing. And I wonder whether or not it can play in the Apple big league or not. What's your take on the MateBook X Pro from Huawei?
4: Well, Bruce, I have to tell you that it, it's going to give Apple a really good run for its money. Uh, we tried the, the Huawei Matebook X Pro the 22 2023 model and it's pretty, pretty good. It hits a real sweet spot between decent performance, beautiful design, very sleek, very premium. Um, and it's got a really good set of, of features. So. Uh, what, what I found wonderful, Bruce, is that as usual with a laptop, a high-end laptop, you've got a power button that's also a fingerprint reader so you can put your finger on it to open. Or when's the last time, Bruce, you use facial recognition to open, uh, your computer? <laughs> And that's what Huawei Never. do. They've got the the technology from. Ah. Yeah, I think it's very clever. They've got the technology from from their smartphones. They put it into into the computer. It's got a 720p webcam, uh, and that lets you do facial recognition. So it's tech specs. It's a 13th gen Intel i7 as a processor it's got 16 gigs of RAM which is very decent most computers kind of start with 8 16 is what you need if you're a power user like you and me Bruce obviously it's got a big 1 terabyte uh solid state hard drive and it's got a nice 14 inch uh touchscreen it's it's you know, it's not just the laptop screen. It's a touchscreen. The resolution is very high and it's the refresh rates up to 90 hertz. It, and, and pleasingly, Bruce, it's got two USB C ports on each side. So four in total and it'll cost oh, about 40,000 rand, which is, you know, a chunk of change, but actually that's what you're going to pay for a high end machine. I'm using a, an M1 MacBook Pro with 13 inch screen. That cost me 30 grand, uh, maybe. A year or two ago, uh, we spec'd out the equivalent M2-powered MacBook Air with a 15-inch screen, the same memory, the same storage specs, and that would cost 47,000 rand. So, uh, you know, as we said in the review on stuff.co.za, it put Mac it puts MacBooks on notice because for a long time, that you know, Apple was a you know set the standard for these kind of portable. Lightweight but powerful, ultra portables is is what Intel calls their their generation of 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 devices, and it's and it's a really good machine. I think uh, think Huawei's done a good job with this. But brand for brand, if I turn up in a shared workspace and I
0: open up my my Apple laptop or open up my Huawei laptop, which is going to get me more? Kudos unfortunately brand wise I <laughs> think Apple may still be you know there's been a fortune on this thing um, it, it's hardly surprising you're spending the same amount of money are you getting the same love if you are displaying your Huawei credentials in a public space
4: so i'm gonna I'm gonna pretend I'm a politician and dodge that question by saying it comes <laughs> down to two different things one is one is if you want to work in Windows and the others if you want to work in Mac. Or yeah. Mac OS, as they now call it. Uh, it's really kind of up to you, isn't it? It's if you are a Mac power user, and a lot of people in the video industry are. Um, a lot of people are familiar with Windows, so they stick with Windows. Some people aren't. They're used to Apple. And, I, and I, the analogy I've used for, for many years, Bruce, is... It's kind of like, uh, the difference between a Mercedes and a, and a BMW. They're both high end luxury German cars. One has indicators on the left. The other has on the right. And it comes down in many ways to your brand choices. And for, for lots of people, they work in the Windows world. This is a, this is a pretty slick device, Bruce. It's, it's, it's sheer white. It, it looks glossy. It has a very premium feel. Um, and I think, uh, I think. You wouldn't feel embarrassed <laughs> taking it out or anyone wouldn't in a, in a shared workspace. Um, also who cares what other people think of your laptop, Bruce? We, we're old enough now not to worry about what, what people think of us.
0: I, it's not for me. It's for everyone else. Toby, you know this. You know, of course, I don't Bruce, of care. course. I know Images, that you, you, you to you're,
4: me. You're, you're, Images, you're resolved nullified. in yourself.
0: There we go. Absolutely. But also, yes, I, I'm, to my mind, a very simple equation is what's the best machine to use on Windows? Because I'm still a Luddite that way. Thank you very much, Toby Shapshack. And Toby is, of course, the chief at Stuff Studios. Tech with Toby on a Monday night. Uh, the Huawei MateBook X Pro, fractionally cheaper than the brand new Equivalent Apple varietal, um, the uh, the the MacBook Air, the 15-inch MacBook Air, you know, it comes in at 47k, whereas the Huawei comes in closer to 40. Showmax now, Showmax is part of MultiChoice. MultiChoice also, of course, uh, is the deliverer of DSTV. Now, Showmax is a streaming service um when i last checked it was sort of bundled into my dstv package i can't say that i've ever watched anything on show max it's i don't feel it's necessary it's not to my life anyway but they want to become more necessary in your life and they want to compete with the likes of disney plus and netflix they've differentiated themselves by adding and this is perhaps clever and i wonder if it's going to make any difference at all to the attitude of subscribers across the african continent a low-cost sports package the new premier league subscription will cost just 69 rand a month and as a standalone offer they will bundle it with a 39 rand general subscription so you get all everything together for 99 rand Um, And you get this chucked into the mix and you get Premier League football games and some entertainment thrown into the mix. But is that going to be enough to uh, win over hearts, minds and wallets across the African continent? Somebody who I hope will have a view on this is Jan Vermeerlin, who is the editor of My Broadband. And Jan, give me a perspective on the state of Showmax first, because it does feel like the poor cousin in the Left at the corner on New Year's Eve at the posh people's sort of annual celebrations, and it doesn't quite fit. In you know, it's got an invite, but nobody expected it to to accept the invite to the party sort of thing. It is the poor cousin, isn't it? Good evening,
3: Bruce. Yeah, it it um, uh, it, it does. Um, it, uh, I agree with uh, that um, with that uh, summary before. This partnership with Comcast and specifically its subsidiary NBC Universal to do this revamp. Uh, ShowMax felt like the forgotten stepchild of the family. Now, it, it MultiChoice's whole future is being staked on this. Uh, they are um, forecasting. They they told investors, um, um, obviously, the, with the purpose of attracting investment. But you know, they threw forecasts up onto a PowerPoint screen say that they're going to do a billion dollars—that's US—in um, uh, revenue within five years uh, through Showmax, and if you crunch those numbers, you're looking at upwards of 15 million subscribers, um, depending on you know how you how you break down the average revenue per user, because there's some cheaper packages, some expensive packages, plus the packages that get bundled for free with S V Premium, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Um, uh, yeah, uh, b- before this, um, Showmax did feel forgotten. I've I've been a Showmax subscriber since the beginning, and I've uh, used it extensively. But um, you know, from from all accounts, uh, you know, it's um, it's it's definitely uh, in the minority uh, when it comes to. Um, you know, people's interest in subscriptions and people don't really think about it when they think of streaming. Um, people, you know, tend to get stuck on Netflix and Disney+. Plus. I-, I wonder how many people even know about Amazon Prime Video in South Africa, not to mention the host of other streaming services there are here. Plus, one more thing to throw into this conversation is for the first time, MultiChoice reported ShowMax's separate revenue last year. They didn't, uh, they didn't report subscriber numbers, but they gave us an idea of revenue. And so they said that ShowMax increased revenue by 46% over the, over the last six months. That's now um, the period ending in 30 September um, 2023 to $555 million. And But it still ran at a trading loss of $799 million. So it 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 um, it's definitely not making money for the group. It is currently uh, making a massive loss. And then uh, another one of the slides that they threw up in that presentation is to say that they um, expect uh, e- essentially all things considered for uh, multi choice plus you know the things that Showmax thrown in and, and you know all the investments that that have to be done here for all that to break even. I think it's within the next three years. And then for Showmax, I think alone to start showing profit. I think it's in the next four to five years. Um, So uh, even though it's it's, uh, showing a massive loss right now, um, they're forecasting that that it's going to essentially save the company.
0: I wonder what the risk is of cannibalization, and I'm sure that they've done the sums in terms of cannibalization, because many people who subscribe to DSTV do it just for the sport, and many of the people who do it just for the sport do it just for the football, and those who do it just for for the football suddenly have got a much cheaper way of accessing just the football. Yeah, and so this is why you're seeing very careful
3: segmentation by multi-choice here. So DSTV right now, as things stands, I think uh, the the brands will um, diverge, differentiate themselves more down the line. Um, and, and, you know, with, through my conversations now with multi-choice South Africa CEO, Mark Jury, and, and the team at Showmax and so on. Um, and maybe we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, so right now, the, the, the way to watch football on a big-screen TV, if you want to watch it on your inch share at home, um, you have to take out a DSTV, I think, Compact or Compact Plus subscription and greater. Um, if uh, ShowMax uh, only provides mobile. So this is targeted at a young, upcoming, uh, starting to become economically active African population. And so um, you know, given the, the numbers that we're talking about here, the number of subscribers that they need, uh, for Shonax. This is not just South Africa. This, this is an African play. They want, to um, they, they, they've been big on Africa here. Um, it, it, like, essentially the way I see it is that if you're long multi-choice, you're long Africa. Because, uh, they, they've been big on the, the, the growth of, of Africa. If, if it doesn't grow, um, within, you know, within the models that they, they've made their predictions on, then this whole venture fails.
0: It's quite eerie, isn't it? Because, you mean, you used the term at the beginning, multi-choice is staking its whole future on this working. And, uh, I mean, that's a big bet on essentially one significant and good value action if you're a football fan, um, and betting on the continent sort of uh, buying into the idea.
3: Yes, and so I'm trying to think, how would I have done this differently? I mean, obviously, if I could... If I could rewind the clock, and you know, we had our own ideas of what we should have done ten years ago already, uh, when when the murmurings of Netflix becoming a problem, um, you know, were first starting. But you know, hindsight's uh, something. If I were in the same position, I wonder if I would do anything differently, um, because it's bleeding UCV premium subscribers. The fact is, it's at the upper end of the affordability. There, people just aren't willing to pay more than. Nine hundred bucks a month, or whatever for for subscription like that. $1,000 you factor in the, the extra costs. Um, then uh, you know the 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 fact is Netflix and Amazon and Disney and all these companies. So like Disney is a partner of this; they buy content from Disney uh, for for DStv. But these same partners, HBO as well, are are sort of knocking on the door. You know where they might um, go directly to, and well, Disney is already go directly to customers here in South Africa through Disney+. Plus. And if things like that take off, that, that could really, really hurt multi-choice. And so what do you do? And, um, you know, uh, the, we've long said that multi-choice is trump card, is sports rights. And even those are coming increasingly under attack. these third parties buy the sports rights and then resell them and try to kind of squeeze uh, broadcasters like multi-choice um, to, to get them to cough up more money than they would have if they'd gotten it directly. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a tough environment now for the for, for market choice to operate in. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, the, the, this, um, this strategy, uh, you know, where you go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into a market where the big guns, the Netflixes, the Amazons, the Disneys, they don't have a single hold. Or or a deep foothold, dive, you want to, whichever metaphor you want to go for. They don't have one in Africa yet. This is our home turf. If we're going to make a stand and and stake a claim in the future of broadcasting, um, this is where we do it. And and um, I I completely understand how they came to this decision. Uh, It's all about the execution, execution now and in praying that you're not too early or too late.
0: Absolutely right. I think prayer has a lot to do with it. Thank you, Jan Vermeulen, editor at My Broadband this evening. The move by Showmax, which is part of MultiChoice, to offer a very, very cost-effective premiership package on top of the Showmax subscription. Showmax has not been the, the great success that they would have hoped. And I think it's been around for about 10 years, it's certainly been around, I remember uh, talking to Chris Becker about it many years ago, but certainly it's uh, a very, very significant move by, um, by, by MultiChoice, which is looking for survivability long term on the African continent. I don't know if you saw the announcement from Metair, this is the company that sells car parts and batteries and it's got a big battery business in Romania that's run foul of regulations in Europe. But it's appointed the former ArcelorMittal chief executive, the guy who, for a brief time, and uh, no, yeah, yeah, ArcelorMittal, he ran ArcelorMittal for a little while. He was also briefly the finance director at ESCO, And yeah, Metair has appointed Paul Oflati as chief executive. It's an interesting appointment uh, announced today on the Stock Exchange News Service. Welcome to the Money Show this evening. How I Make Money brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. That is what they do. And I saw a comment from Darryl Bristow Bovey the other day, who was quite overwhelmed by a gesture he had witnessed taking place at Alan Committee's Joburg run. Alan Committee doing his, uh, his annual festival of laughs. Uh, this one is called Fast and Reasonably furious, I think he's referring to himself. He is fast, he's reasonable, and he's furious. Um, But the comedian and entertainer giving up an entire night's takings to donate them to a benevolent fund looking after theatre workers, people who've fallen on hard times, people in the theatre who have not had the consistency of work, who haven't had the the benefit of making the big bucks during their careers and without any proper backup, um, find themselves struggling. And Alan Committee gave an entire evening's takings from one of his Joburg Nights. I hope we understand that properly because I've been singing your praises for days, Alan. I've been singing your praises For days on this um is it something you do often uh i do love that charity it's it's called theater benevolent fund
5: and as you say it it looks after those who have been unfortunate either in illness or uh uh, you know after a certain age haven't been employed for a while and uh, it's a it's a wonderful curated uh a group of people who look after you know any uh, charity or charitable funds that are made and and give it to the appropriate actors and i yeah i've been supporting them for a while so it seemed like a good time it was my 50th birthday and I had a show that night so I decided to uh, to donate all the proceedings from that particular performance to the sh- to, to the to the charity.
0: Well, well done. I think it was a lovely gesture, and I think um, a lot of people are very, very, very touched by it. Let's go back, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back, uh, because this is how I make money. And the idea being here, Alan, is that we try and figure out how people get to doing what they do and why they do what they do and what they did to get to do what they do. Your education, before you did your high school teacher training stuff, when you go to school, what were your interests at school? school what was it that was your parents hoped that young Allen committee would grow up to be well I, those were all
5: different things i've got to tell you right from the start uh, <laughs> i knew from about if i'm honest i knew from about seven or eight years old when i was growing up in thunderbell park that i wanted to make people laugh i remember going to a boswell wilkie show for a couple of years they used to tour in those days and they came through the huge metropolis of thunderbell park um, and And I saw them two years in a row and I remember thinking, this seems like a fun idea. So by the time I got to what was then standard five, I was 12, 13 years old, I said to my folks that I'm keen now, I would love to go into the world of acting. And I saw some of the best acting I've ever seen on my dad's face as he responded to that. Um, Because he pretended like he would support me and that was an incredible thing. Uh, He was a man (laughs) from the Navy and I think he had much higher or let's say, uh, other hopes for me, perhaps I was I was quite a high achieving student, or re, even by then, and certainly in high school I was kind of an A student and did all the, the things that were necessary to do. I suspect uh, occupations that might have brought me more money at the time. But he was amazing because between him and my mom they went, that's fine, uh, and in that discussion when I was 13 years old they said, okay, well acting strikes us as quite a uh, kind of risk laden op- uh, occupation. Is there anything else you might do as a backup? And I went, yeah, teaching, and then some more acting occurred from them, as they pretended that was a good idea as well, and uh, and that was it. It was decided certainly on my side, and throughout high school, I just knew I was going to follow both of those paths. I wasn't quite sure how it would work out, but I studied as a as an actor at UCT, firstly, and then uh, went on and did an HDE uh, diploma for high school teaching, and and I always knew that the teaching would be a kind of backup and a and an entry point maybe. And that's kind of how it worked out because for the first six or seven years, I taught part-time in a number of different schools, including my alma mater, which was uh, Westerford. And then during that time started doing one-man shows and writing my own work. It wasn't stand-up at that time. It was really actor-based and trying to write theater shows. But quickly it began to develop into comedy and and particularly solo comedy and, and stand up. And from that is the first time I really saw an opportunity to actually make money out of an industry, which is notorious for being, you know, a high risk and uh, often low income. But it just struck me as something that I could work at. And also because all my friends were going into business. And by that, I mean, either doctor science or business leaders or whatever. They also from them, I kind of learned, I've got to treat my art as a business. And I think that maybe set me apart, at least from some of the peers around me at that time, is that I just kind of went, yeah, I love what I do. I'm getting a chance to do what I love, but I also want to treat it like a business and I want to work out what, how can I give myself the best chance to actually make a living out of this
0: but the the gap between acting and drama and comedy yep. is quite big. They're connected, of course, they're connected. And I wonder whether you stood in front of classrooms for those seven, I'm sure, very long years, and, <laughs> and you, uh, and whether or not you were a, were you Robin Williams uh, Dead Poet Society? Were you that right. kind of teacher? Oh, um, or did you I, want to be that kind of teacher, that kind of comedian? In fact, um, but uh, the, <laughs> you know, w- w- were you did you seek to amuse and entertain the class as a as a tool to teach? I wonder. Yes,
5: yes. I, I guess the short answer is yes. And 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 whether it was deliberate or just the way my DNA is wired and the kind of person I am, that's what ended up happening. And of course, it taught me many things. I didn't necessarily recognize at the time, which was. You know, reading rooms and understanding crowd mentality and uh, keeping people's attention and uh, preparation and changing of topics and tone and pitch and body language and all of that stuff, which came in very handy when I was up on stage alone and facing a crowd of who knows how big. So certainly there were lots of skills that I acquired along the way, and that was unintentional. I didn't think about that consciously at the time. And the other thing that was probably even more important when I reflect on it is that it was the building, it was the first building of an audience for me because I started putting on little shows towards the end of my time at Westerford. And those first groups of 20, 30 people were parents of kids that I taught and who came purely, I'm sure out of, you know, trying to help the poor teacher and he was taking a show to Grahamstown as I was in 1998 and thought, well, let's help the poor lad. And, And and fortunately, I was able to do stuff that was good enough for a couple of years. And so those 20 or 30 people could spread the word to 20 or 30 more. And quickly, that kind of escalated. And when I look back now and I talk to younger comics, particularly who come to me and say, how do I build a crowd? I don't quite know how to reply because I did it serendipitously. It kind of just happened for me. And organically, I could start with a group, as I say, of, you know, 50 people. And that gave me a head start. It gave me something to work with. Um, whereas today, there's so much noise out there, there's so much stuff happening. Mm. And if you're starting as a young comic in a world where you can see almost any comic of any quality from around the globe within seconds, online, streamed, paid or whatever, or they'll come and tour our country, it's very hard if you're starting out to put your hand up and be noticed. Uh, so that timing it- was also worked for me, you know, in my favor.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, I think your your performance starts long before you're performing to the parents. Your, if you can survive a room of 15 to 17-year-olds in Cape Town schools, you can survive anything. There is no heckle that it's ever going to be worse than the disdain of a teenager in a classroom, surely. Yeah,
5: no, you're absolutely right. And and you do, as I said before, you, you learn to read. You know, some classes, I mean, all educators will tell you this, You as you go off to a class, you have a you have an understanding or you, you, well, you have it's not always accurate, but you have a sense of what that class is. This is the questioning class. This is the naughty class. This is the hugely uh, motivated class. That's going to push me and ask me questions. So I better be prepared. This is the lazy class who doesn't care how much preparation I've done. Uh, it, it it will never meet with them and their lack of interest. So you, you have different strategies and approaches to all those groups of people. And, you know, certainly now when I get on stage, that that. uh evaluation of a group of people takes sometimes a minute and a half or two and you go, ah, all right, I know who these people are or at least what they might be and and then act accordingly.
0: The adrenaline rush of the audience is possibly one of life's more delicious things. And you know whether or not you're going to have a good night or not. I think probably within the first 30 seconds, Alan, when you stand up or a good day or a good morning, whatever it might be, I think, you know, within 30 seconds as to how that audience responds to your first sort of flourish as you, as you go out and say, hi.
5: Absolutely. And of course, as a comic, but I guess even as a speaker um, and you and I have shared stages and, and even spoken about this pre and post presentations, Uh, you can get a a reading of the crowd before you go on, just from how they respond to other speakers and or performers. And then, of course, as you go on that, for me, the task is to get a laugh as quickly as possible, um, you know, within the first 30 seconds, and then off that laugh to gauge what kind of crowd this might be. It doesn't mean if they don't give you the response you were wanting that they're going to be a bad audience, but it does mean you get a, a sense of the strategy you might need to play. So, in other words, I need to pace this up or sometimes I'm playing to an audience that are not speaking in their first language. And, and that's interesting. Cause I remember watching Casper de Fris for many years and sitting in a group of Afrikaans, like 200 Afrikaans people who were literally rocking in their seats with laughter. And I had to translate before I could respond. Yes. And so I know what that is to play to an audience who are not speaking English as a first language. They are they listening, but you've got to give them those extra couple of seconds to do all the sums in their head and then respond appropriately or inappropriately, as the the case may be.
0: How smart do you need to be to be a comedian? You already dropped in. You didn't quite say, I've got an MBA, but you did say I was an A student. So we know that you could achieve academically. But how critical is it to have brains in your head and shoes in your feet to take you down this path of of being able to amuse and entertain?
5: I would say that anyone who's got a a good sense of humor needs their brain needs to be working on certain levels. Now, I mean, you and I know that there's so many different um, metrics and measurements of what is intelligence. So that's a, I wouldn't say that you need to have a, I don't know how you would say you need to be this bright or uh, that, you know, achieve in that level, but I would say that your brain needs to be working at a particular way. And of course, all comedy is really just perspective on different things. I always say to often to clients that, you know, everyone, as a comedian, I experience the same frustrations or joys or irritations that everyone else does, but I then step aside, even if it's just one degree, or step back and take a fresh look, and then I can see the comic possibilities. I want to find out what's incongruous about this, what's the surprise about this, what's the unexpected reveal about this. And then, so that, in a sense, maybe the reframing of stuff requires a certain kind of brain activity or brain technique and and maybe that's equated to intelligence does that answer your question or is that a very wanky way of
0: of the plan <laughs> I'll never repeat what you just said but we're not on air anyway uh, but it was it, it was a very neat uh, way to say yes I'm smarter than most people and yes I have complete control of the situation um, the lovely Jeremy Mansfield who sadly died last year but I remember chatting in the early days of the money show and I said how much is you know on, on your show how much is planned and how much is spontaneous and he said to yep. me everybody thinks it's spontaneous and that's because we plan it so well Uh what? the The need to script and to do it tightly and to within, I suppose, acceptable realms of deviation to keep to the script and to keep to the punchlines and to keep delivering on the material, I think it's instrumental to success. Do you ever feel the need to go, this audience is just not getting it. I need to make another plan here. Or do you stick to your script religiously? So. One of the things I've worked uh, now. This is my uh,
5: the show that I'm currently running, uh, *Frost and Reasonably Furious*. Is the 26th solo show over 26 years. So, sure. And I've worked almost, uh, almost exclusively with one director, Chris Weir. Um, and and Chris and I have developed over the years, not necessarily consciously initially, but certainly as time went on and we've realised the kind of strength and, and possibilities around it is this idea of being very prepared and coming with a as Jeremy intimated, a strong sense of preparation and prepared material, but with because you've got that and if you're good enough to do so, that when you then riff and improvise off the topic or from the topic or given certain stimulus from an audience, someone shouting out stuff or it's something that happens in an audience, someone runs to the toilet, or, that I can then take that and because I've been so prepared, the danger and the freedom of that riffing is what creates the excitement and the joy in an audience. And so the opposite of that is if I only came in and just improvised an hour long show, I think there'd be an excitement initially. And then if it didn't work, let's say even for three or four minutes in a row, we would start panicking because we'd start going, does he know what he's doing and it, how is this going to end? And how do I get out of this? Whereas if I riff and improvise off the back of a prepared show, even if it doesn't work, they know, I, they just instinctively feel, like I'm in control. I mean you said that earlier and they they feel like I can go back if I need to to the prepared stuff. And and so what I do now is I would say any one performance of a new show is at least fifteen to twenty percent riffed and improvised and using what that evening. But if it's a show that an audience is not responding to that, it'll go back to ninety five percent prepared. And if it's a show where they're really wild and they just want to chat and play I can go as much as 35% improvised because I can then play between those two forms. Um, and that wouldn't happen in the first two or three shows of a performances of a new show because I'm still learning my own material. But certainly now I've been going for four and a half weeks. In fact, this is the start started our fifth week in takedown. By this stage, I now know my show, know the strengths of it, what the rhythms are. And I can, I think it's like a jazz musician where you know what the measures are, you know what the... the various bars that you're going to hit and and come back to, but you can then just go, take a solo, play on this, and then we'll come back at a certain point. And any musician, you know, even though you're playing something quite strict in terms of sheet music, you can breathe life and creativity and beauty, hopefully, within those measures. I think that's true of almost all art form and certainly stand-up.
0: Talk to me about the seasons, because my sense of it is that you spend a year... Sort of preparing for next year's content and then the next year trading off the content while developing new content for next year. So you go very busy December, January where you do the solo stand up stuff. And then for the other 10 months of the year, you're kind of thinking about what you're going to be doing in December, January next season while leveraging off what you've already created, perhaps testing some new material in the MC work, in the corporate entertainment work that you Mm -hmm. then subsequently do um, to, to keep the paychecks coming through the, the 12 months of the year. Yeah, that's exactly it.
5: And and it's become a very, it certainly works for me that way. Um, I've been lucky in that Peter Turin has been very supportive of the years and given me that December slot almost exclusively. I think out of 15 years, I've done 11 of the December shows or seasons. And that is a great slot in Cape Town, particularly because we get to play to all the foreigners who come into town. Um, all the Joe, you know, all, all the upcountry folk from South Africa who end up in in the mother city. I mean, I've I've now got a, it's got to the point where in you know, August September I get lots of the the swallows from Europe, you know, DMing me and say, Oh, you're doing a Christmas show? We're booking. We're bringing the family. So that it's become their kind of holiday season show that they visit. And then, as you say, the rest of the year is using the material taken from that new show to feed into corporates because often I'm doing repeat work for big companies. So I at least can with confidence say you're not going to see you're going to see at least 80 percent new stuff every time you book me. And that helps me keep a good relationship uh, and an ongoing career in in the corporate world. Um, And it also then because I'm doing that in the corporate world, as you say, then I can also prepare and test one or two new things for the new show. So they all feed into each other. And then perhaps the thing to add to all of that is that it goes right back full circle because by the success of the stand-up and the corporates, I generate money that I can then invest into doing plays, which is the first thing I studied with uh, and for, doing plays that don't necessarily make big money. If anything, I'm just trying to break even. And But my goal there is to feed me creativ- creatively yeah. and to employ other actors who may or designers, directors. So the last, seven or eight years, I've tried to do a bucket list and I've been lucky enough to do a Noises Off for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Richard the Third. The big one coming up now in a couple of months is Amadeus, which is a play I've been wanting to do oh. for 20 odd years. And I can only do it because of the successes I've been able to enjoy as a stand-up and as a corporate um, because,
0: you it, know, I produced it myself. Isn't it, one, isn't it wonderful, though, Alan, in terms of um, the, the the stuff that we perceive to be the fun, and I'm sure you enjoy the stand-up, although by week five you must yeah. be going, if they don't love this, <laughs> um, I'm going to slip my wrists, and off you go, and you, you deliver the lines, and you do it like it's the first night every night, and people yeah. love it. But that allows the passion projects. It allows you yeah. to go back to drama and meaningful um acting and work and directing and being in charge oh it's a beautiful thing and i'm so lucky because when i grew up i
5: just missed i caught the tail end of the performing arts councils which of course had many other problems but the thing that we got to enjoy was the classics that were you know brought to us from the west end and broadway and big plays and small productions and brilliant texts and i only just caught the tail end of that and i see what I go every year, I try to go at least once a year to both New York and and London and see what's on currently. And when I see that kind of, I want to be able to bring some of that. You know, like Peter Turing was able to do in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. It's becoming harder and harder. With our weak rand, you know, the cost of just the rights and royalties for any production is sometimes completely prohibitive. Uh, We were trying to do a big musical uh, that's just about to start again. It's been brought back as a revival on Broadway. And they wanted to charge us $120,000 just for royalties. And that doubles our budget for the small theaters. So we have to say no. It's becoming tricky. And so to be able to do any of these plays is, believe me, every time I consign and say, all right, we're doing this one, it brings me a huge um, amount of joy and pleasure.
0: Um, Have you been tempted by the offshore dollar? Many of our comedians have done very well internationally, not necessarily with the Mm. volume of work that they've got domestically, but have you done the global shows? Have you gone on on road shows? Have you followed the diaspora? Uh, A little bit. Very early on, I kind of
5: recognized that that was a... And some of the guys left when they were very early or or as they hit their peak in this country, they took the risk. I mean, Trevor Noah is the, the, the biggest example of that. You know, he had just made his huge breakthrough here off the back of adverts and, uh, and and all the comedy shows. And then he took the risk. And, of course, we forget that he went around for six, I think it's between four and five years, you know, just playing to no one in the States. But he's, he kind of, it, it turned for him and it turned brilliantly for him. But, of course, there are many where it doesn't turn. And so I looked at that and I thought, nah, I would take my, I always talk about myself as a Gary Kirsten as it, so I know the three shots I can play, and I'm happy to nurdle my way to 150, even if it takes a little longer. Um, the Herschel Gibbses and the super talented A.B. De Villierses can go out and do their thing. but And with that image in mind, I've played overseas, and I've loved every moment that I've done it. I've done a lot in England and a, a bit in the States, but it, uh, what I've I've, do- I've approached it as a puzzle and something that gives me great joy and teaches me a new skill perhaps in any one moment but it was certainly never with the intention of staying there or trying to earn anything big because of course to be out there you've got to then pay to be out there and so often i mean and and that's true of some of the comics out there they south africans who are doing very well but only just making ends meet to live in those ridiculously expensive environments
0: then your biggest your biggest audience ever so far I mean, have you done have you done the Michael McIntyre Wembley sort of setups, or do you, um, do you like to keep it more um, contained? Yeah, a bit more contained. I've done in, a, in like four, five,
5: six thousands at convention centres, um, both for big comedy lineups and obviously for corporates, um, and then you know and played to eight people in a dining room, which include uh, included F W De Claude. So really, from the sublime <laughs> did to um,
0: <laughs> did you get him to <laughs> laugh? Because my I, goodness, I had one or two interactions with him, but my goodness, he was hard work, yes. No, he was hard work. And, um, and and his Greek wife at the time was there. Maybe it
5: was all Greek to him. I don't know. I decided not to ask the question. They seemed happy enough at the end.
0: <laughs> time was passed. Well, but it, it, it's the intimacy of the eight is often... More terrifying oh, than the spectacle of the five thousand, surely one hundred percent. And but having also said
5: that, uh, you know, theatre in the theatre I'm playing now is a two hundred and fifty-six seater, and there's more joy in that. In- so not as intimate as eight, of course. You're you're quite right because then there's just not enough of a of a vibe and a and a crowd feeling. But in a two hundred seater, often and most comics that I you know hang out with and chat to will agree with me that a two or three hundred seater is much lovelier to play than a 5,000-seater, even though the 5,000-seater is going to make your bank ballots laugh and, and delight. Um, the 200-seater means you really get a sense of playing of energy and you, you feel like you're chatting to people. Whereas in the 5,000-seater, when I've done, for example, even Grand West Casino, and, and we've done a big comedy lineup, and you're on camera, and so that people aren't even watching you. They're watching past you at the screens, looking at you but not at you. and And the laughter comes to you in waves. So as you time one joke, you think you can move on. But the back is now only the back audience is only their laughter is only reaching you now halfway through your next joke. And so that's it's a, it, it feels more like a placed performance than a live uh, conversation mm-hmm. and interaction.
0: What wonderful wisdom and insights as always. Alan Committee, thank you. The comedian and entertainer, former high school teacher. That's where he <laughs> earned it. That's where he won his right to do it. But also the actor and the director. Very earnest and serious is our Alan Committee but hilarious. His show in Cape Town at the moment, I think in week five, Fast and Reason.